You're listening to The Slam, a national club golfer podcast with me, Alex Perry. Quiz question. Who was the first left-hander to play in the Ryder Cup? Nope, it was Peter Dawson in 1977. Indeed, Peter is the only left-handed player to represent GB&I, or Europe as it is now, and over the next 40 minutes or so, Peter discusses his short but historic involvement in the biennial competition as one of many British and Irish players who saw their Ryder Cup careers extinguished by the addition of European stars. Peter also explains how he fluked his way into a golf career before giving us a fascinating insight into being a tour pro in the 1970s, which many people consider the golden age of tour golf. Given the players we discuss, it's difficult to argue with that assessment. Make sure you stick around for the stories involving Tom Watson and Nick Faldo. Enjoy. Hello, Peter. Thank you for joining us on the NCG podcast. It's very nice to to have you on the line. Now, let's start at the beginning. At at what point did you think about turning this, what is a hobby for millions of us, into a career? By chance, really, Alex, just by chance. I I played for England uh, when I was 19 as an amateur um, in Ireland, in the England team. And I got a job in Johannesburg in, uh, when I was 20 in plastics. And in those days, it was in, in extrusion, and it was very new to the world. And I got a job over there, and I went across by boat. I went to South Africa, docked in Cape Town, and I stayed a little bit too long because I was stupid, I was youthful, I was 20, and thought the world would wait for me. And I stayed uh, a week too long, and I phoned the office up in Joburg and said, I'm here, I'm coming back I'm coming to start tomorrow, and I got a shock of my life, and I realised that I wasn't that very important for the company, and they said, we've let your job go to somebody else. So now I'm in South Africa, in Cape Town, with no job and very little money left. And I got on the train, went up to Johannesburg, uh, needing a job, and, and I phoned a couple, made a couple of phone calls, and I got a job with David Black at Houghton country club golf and country club as about the third assistant and uh, so I had to find a job my plastic days were finished the only job in South Africa the only factory in South Africa I'd uh, messed up Uh, so I had to get a job and I went uh, applied for the assistant's job at Houghton with David Black and that's how my golf started and it it was just by chance and then the next thing is you're on the, the European tour. <laughs> yes. Well, I did my three years being an apprentice, uh, being an assistant pro. I did my two and a half years there. And I, uh, and I came home when I was 23, 24. And I went back to Friday, Scarborough, where, I, where my formative years. And I practiced and, and tried to help Doug in the shop. And, and I did my three years. And then 74, I started on the tour. And 75, you got your first win. Oh, I only yeah. win. Yes. I was just lucky. Just hard work, perseverance. Let's jump forward to 1977, because what a year that was for you. Uh, seventh in the order of merit, the leading Englishman on that. Um, and you played in the Ryder Cup, of course, the first left-handed player to do so, no less. Um, and still only the, the only lefty to represent 
GBI in Europe. Tell us a little bit about the the Ryder Cup in those days. Was it the spectacle it is today with the thousands of fans at the tees? And a lot of players these days talk about the huge goal it is for them to qualify for the Ryder Cup. Was it the same in the 70s? Oh, yes, without doubt. You still, you know, the money wasn't there. The thousands upon thousands of spectators and TV coverage wasn't there. But to play in the Ryder Cup, to get in it, that's that was your goal. That's, you know, you are a professional sportsman trying to to play in the biggest team event and in golf there is. So that was always, once you knew you could get into it, you were out there fighting as hard as you could. Once you had a couple of Ernie events, tournaments, where you did well, you suddenly started thinking, I'm in the top 10 in the order of merit, I'm in the top 10 in the team, I must keep I must keep going. So yes, the, the pride, the spirit, the hard work, the initiative, the endeavour to get in the team was just would be the same then as it is today. And at, at the actual Ryder Cup itself, a couple of defeats on the first two days, but then you mentioned Don January before, and, and I think it's fair to say you absolutely thrashed him on the final day, five and four. Now, that was the third match out. Uh, it sort of kick-started a, a mini resurgence from the European team that didn't quite come off. Uh, sorry, from the GBNI team that didn't quite come off. No, it didn't quite. I mean, the culture was you would always... The, the, the nature of the game, you'd always lose to America because they were so much better in those days. And, you know, the, 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 the play, I thought, <clears throat> and I still thought to think today... The, the difference between winning and losing in that Ryder Cup was very small. Um, I played four balls and four sums with Neil Coles. We lost both times. I think it was one down both times. We should have won. Um, they, I think the American, when you look back, the Americans expected to win. And I, I think maybe, although we knew we could win, and I knew I could win, and and with Neil, who's a lovely, great player and a lovely man, you believed you could win, but there was just that, the culture of, well, we, you know, Britain has never won. Uh, America's a big country. But times then when people started, the players started going off to America, it, and Ballesteros came on and led the field then, it started to change. The belief then came in. But the minute, the, the, as you talk about the mini revival, the players, all the players there could, could on their day, could beat, beat anybody. Um, and it did just start looking like we could do something. But it just it just didn't happen in the end. But it was a close run thing for quite a long time. It was a close run thing. The interesting point you made there was, of course, two years later at 79, when when was there any I'm trying to think how to word this sensitively was was there any resentment from the GBNI players towards the Europeans? Because suddenly players like you, for example, are, are possibly not getting another chance to play in the Ryder Cup because suddenly it's become open to the to the entire continent. Oh, I think in hindsight, there might have been, I think there was a little bit of resentment, but that's hindsight. I mean, we have to move forward and Europe uh, had to come involved. I mean, though, I did think at the time the word the Ryder Cup was GB&I and it is, it might have needed to be renamed as something else. Um, but that was my belief in at the time in 79. But I think at the, there, I wasn't, personally, there was no resentment. But I did hear at the time, remembering a little bit, yes, there was a little room, a little bit of vibration. But but that's hindsight. We have to move on. Uh, my only thought at the time was maybe we need to rename that it shouldn't be, it could not be the Ryder Cup as such. Mm-hmm. Sam Ryder didn't think about Europe. But, yeah. but hindsight, 
I was wrong. It it was great. Uh, we had had to move on. It couldn't stay. It would have it would have stopped. It would have ceased to exist by '81 with the Americans being great and and losing and Britain losing again. It would have ceased to exist. That's fascinating to hear. Now. Another rookie in the team that week was a 20-year-old Nick Faldo, who at the point had had um, the first of his 30 or so European Tour wins that he went to have. It's a bit of a cliched question, but could you see then just how special he was as a player? Yes. Just to put it in one, in a very quick word, reply, yes. I think you can always, whenever you play with, when you witness a youngster, whether it's it's Nick Faldo or 20-year-old, or a 15-year-old, you can see there's a bit of stardust about them. That you just there's something that you you look and you think this this man or this boy is going to become good. He should become good with a with the right coaching or whatever. He's going to be good, or they are going to be good. There just occasionally you see them and you think, boy. And Faldo was one. He he worked damned hard. He got on, he got on. He played in that Ryder Cup, and then two or three years later. I started to change his swing just then with Ledbetter, and he was working eight hours a day, uh, and he devoted himself totally to golf. And so, but you thought, hey, he's going to make it, as you would with Gary Player, who worked so hard, and Faldo was the same. He worked so hard, you thought, yes, this guy is going to make it. And you represented England with him later that year in the World Cup. How did that come about? Did, I mean, these days it's the the highest ranked player picks their playing partner. What was the selection process in these days? Those those days. Just the same, Alex. It was the best. It was a leading two in the in the order of merit, and it was maybe at the time I was seventh in the order of merit, and Nick was about eighth. But we were the top two Englishmen in the order of merit, I think, at the time of of selection. So. We were we uh, were picked and off we went to uh, Singapore to the Wack Wack. We played the golf course Wack Wack Golf and Country Club. Yes. Yes. Now, let's talk about the Open. Now everyone's favourite tournament. Um, you played in seven between seventy four and eighty two. I'll start with Turnbury in seventy seven because we've obviously been talking about seventy seven. Uh, you played the first two rounds with eventual champion Tom Watson. Now he comes up quite a lot in your book. Yeah. Because you often hear his nickname is Gentleman Tom, and he is, and you have a lot of respect for him as a person and as a golfer, and just the way over the years he has adapted to change as well to his with the golf swing, golf technique, but he's still he's remained a gentleman, and always, you admired him. He was he, you walked onto the first tee um, on that particular day. I'd met him before. But at Turnbury, you're on the first tee. He's, he's just won the, um, the the Masters, and he's the big champion. He's the big draw. And, of course, at 10.30 or 10 o'clock on the first day in the British Open, you walk onto the tee, and all the stands are packed solid, and the all the first fairway is, is, uh, has got thousands of people lining it. And it doesn't matter who you are, you suddenly start getting a little bit nervous. Um <laughs> And you, you know, you sort of, you went along and, and shook hands with him, and you know, you're you're just a very small fellow from Yorkshire, and there you, you are playing with a master champion who will just put you at ease straight away, and you'd walk down the I think within 50 yards of hitting the shot off the first tee, you, he was talking to you and not talking at you, he was talking with you, and two days it was just talking. We played. Uh, under extreme pressure, he, uh, I was 
I was trying to make money. I was trying to make the cut. And he was playing as the US, as the Masters champion, help, um, red hot favorite um, to win the event. So there's a lot of pressure, but he puts you at ease. And it was just a wonderful experience to play with somebody like Tom Watson, who is a gentleman. How far in advance did you find out that you were playing with him? Oh, you, you, um, the draw came out on, I think it was the Monday evening, a Monday morning, I think, or Sunday evening. So, um, how did you react with panic (laughs) (laughs) on the Sunday evening? I, with my wife, we sort of in the hotel and I sort of got the sheets and I said, you know, something along the lines of, oh, bloody hell, I'm playing not only just in the open again, but. I'm playing with the biggest favourite, the biggest draw, the biggest name in the world of golf. Um, so it was it was a, a nervous reaction, but a happy one to think I have got to play with these. I have got to stand on the first tee in front of all these people and, and not make a, uh, a not be embarrassed by by playing with somebody like this. It was a lovely experience and a lovely a lovely time. And a year later, you played with um, Lee Trevino, fellow lefty Bob Charles at, Bob St. Charles at St. Andrews. And yes, and, you know, Trevino played him a few times. And again, when I played with Ballesteros a few times, these these chaps were magicians. You know, again, you were saying, did you know that Faldo would become what he was? You, you played with um, Trevino and you thought, this man's shot making, his insight as Ballesteros was, his visionary was is fantastic. I you know I may be thinking of just going from A to B, but Torino was thinking about going to A, C, and then D. You know, he was thinking outside the box, hitting lovely shots, um, in, it, just impressive. He was a magician and a gentleman as well. I mean, everyone said, oh, he talked and talked and talked. Yes, he talked, but once he, you you as your his playing partner pulled the club out of your bag, he shut up, he gave you the respect, but uh, he never spoke when you were preparing, but he would he would be chatting away to the spectators, to, to his playing partners, whilst he's still addressing the ball, and a split second un, until he actually starts taking the, the club head back, but a lovely experience, again, you're playing with gentleman Bob Charles, Sir Bob, um, just goes down the fairway doing a very good job, um, and then you're playing with a, a magician, and I'm, and I'm, I'm in, I'm in mixing with these fellas. What? It's a lovely. I had the great fortune, and I don't know why. It was just luck. I had the fortune to play with these people through my through those days on the tour. It really was the the, the golden age. I mean, if you go through the the roll call of of Open champions in certainly from the late 60s. The, the Watsons and the players and the Nicholases, and then you go through to to the likes of Seve and, and Lyle and Greg Norman, and and and, and then of course uh, your old pal Faldo. Um, that really was the golden age. Was there was there a more difficult period to win the Open in its history? Oh, I think to win any Open is going to be difficult, Alex, whoever you are. But that was the golden age. The names you mentioned there made the European Tour what it is today. Without those people, and Tony Jacklin. Um, dragging the golf into the modern day, the money wouldn't be there. And, and I tend to think that the players of today should thank those fellas for getting the tour going. Um, but to, to win to win the, the Opens, I mean, Nicholas won all his Opens and Championships. Um, he was playing against the Watsons. And 
And today, Tiger Woods, who, is, who was winning everything, was still playing against a lot of great players. I think the standard now is so strong in depth, whereas maybe 20 people or 15 people could win the Open because of the stress, the nerves and the capabilities and the technique. Whereas now, there's a, it's a lot deeper than the 20 or 30, which, which we mentioned. Um, they're just the sheer numbers. It, it, um, but being good at golf technically and, and physically and everything else, until you're on the last nine holes, a lot of people can uh, lead the, the Open. But to actually win it, win mentally on the last nine, that takes a lot of skill. And that's where the Nicholas's and the, the Ballesteros and the Langers were great, as Tiger Woods is today. But I think the numbers are greater in depth. Now, you, you saw all these players up close and personal. Who for you was the best? Like, if you could go back and play around with one of them, who would you go for? Difficult question, I Well, Tom Watson, I think, because he was just the great player, a, a lovely gentleman to play with, no side. He was just fantastic. But then you think, well, hang on, Ballesteros, because of his charm. He was this magnetic character he was, and his playing ability. And then you play with Tom Weisskopf, British Open champion, a military style, he walked down the fairway as if he was an, it was square bashing. Um, you have so many characters. Um, Gary Player, because he's just, you think how much work he put into it and what he put into it. And he would possibly at the age of 65, even today possibly, he would still be thinking, I'm still good enough to, to win the British Open or any Open. Very difficult for me to pinpoint um, one. And Trevino was fantastic. Bob Charles in a different way, was fantastic. Faldo was just a real businessman. He went about, as he is, the greatest British golfer we've had. And what what's nice to think that I played with him a few times, it's lovely. But I think if you put it all, I didn't answer your question very quickly there, but I think Tom Watson, because of his record and how he just went about talking to spectators and just his manner, he would just be a fraction above all the other people I mentioned. I'll tell you what, let's, let's have some fun with it. So let's build your perfect golfer. So let's take driving, iron game, short game and putting and, and mental game. Let's take those five categories and build your perfect golfer. So who would you pick to, and you can only pick each golfer one. So who would you pick to drive the golf ball? I think I need to, could you give me a week to think about this? <laughs> I think one thing to start off with, technically, could I say Tom Tom Weisskopf, technically, the overall technical. He sure. was just something else. He was fantastic. Driving, Greg Norman, he was to play with him. He was fantastic and a big, long driver and very accurate, naturally. When I asked Greg Norman the same question, he said me without a doubt. Not me. I mean him. He said himself. Which so. I mean, that's, that's some confidence to, to pick yourself in, in such a big category. Well, if you don't believe it, Alex, you're not, you're not going Absolutely. to. So you don't want any doubt. When you stand on that first tee, we talk about Turnberry, standing on the first tee with 10,000 people behind you and all the ones. You don't want to be standing at the top of the on the tee thinking, now, which swing am I about to use today? Should I be thinking in to out, out to in? You think all those hours practice I've done in the past is better standing in good stead because I'm here now. I've got to do it. So interesting, Greg said that. I would, I mean, I've 
fortunately, you've, you've seconded me on that. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Greg, so Greg's found the middle of the fairway with a nice drive on our yeah. metaphorical par five. Who yeah. is then playing your second shot to the up to the green? I think Faldo, because he would the, is the the ultimate machine. He's taken into the fact that the the where the wind's coming from, what what he's doing. What it, it was the he was the you know he was methodically thinking. He was a, a very professional man. So I would put him down for technically and methodically and knowing what he's doing. So he would be the the, the second shot then. Okay, so he's left us. Um, he's played a lovely iron shot. Left us maybe ten yards short of the green. Who's who's playing onto the green for you? It'd be a toss up between player and Ballesteros, and I think I would have to go for Ballesteros because of the the actual imagination, the technique, yes, but the sheer imagination and the the, the shot process of going into it. And and who's putting for you? Who's your putter? Well, Bob Charles. I mean, fellow left-hander, Bob Charles was was well known for his best putting. Ben Crenshaw, but the people I never played with Ben Crenshaw. So the people I would say I played with, it would have been Bob Charles. But of course that needs technique and imagination again. All those people we've we've talked about have to have feeling, imagination and hard work. But I think Bob just had this business like he he was centered on doing his job. He just took everything, you know, like a like a school teacher. He, he just read it like from a book the speed of it uh, and the feeling the imagination with a hell of a good technique now let's just i just want to touch on the courses a little bit because if i look if i look down the list of the courses that you've played in the open lytham carnusty burkdale turnbury st andrews and troon they're the, the courses you played well first of all i have to ask which is your favorite open venue because of the views of turnbury because it's not just playing on the golf course, you want to be looking around and you looked across the sea there, um, the lighthouse. Turnby was a lovely, a lovely venue, not only just for the golf course being a fantastic golf course. And I understand designers now have made it even better. I haven't been back. But the view, the, the playing in the open and everything else is one thing, but you, you need a bit of view to, uh, to, to take your mind off it. So I, I, I'll go for Turnby. Any golf courses that you've played that you've you've been going round and thinking, God, this could this could host an open. I'm not trying to push you into a Royal North Devon answer there, by the way. <laughs> well, I suppose of the latter years I've played the, the latter golf courses, St Ports, Royal St Ports, but that's right next door to St George's. But you know, you you look at you think some little golf courses, you play in golf course, you think, oh, this is lovely, but hang on a minute. You can't get the infrastructure in here. You can't get the people. You can't get the, the crowds. Wonderful golf course. What's what's your favourite course you've played? Favourite, most interesting, again, is not just the playing from tee to green. A golf course we played in Barranquilla, uh, in South America. I played with Roberto Di Vincenzo, just won the Open there. And the golf course was magnificent, tough as anything. But it was all the, the wildlife where it was set. It was on the coast. It was really jungle. Uh, and the wildlife was magnificent. As we've got sparrows over here, they had parakeets and different wildlife. It was wonderful. So I tend to now, always did, probably why I never played any better than I did, because I was my mind was always going off wandering, not on the Enjoy golf. The view. <laughs> it was looking at the views and looking at the scenery. <laughs> but it sounds to me like that is 
just as important to you as the actual design of the golf course things like the views and and, the, and, and like you say in south america the wildlife well personally yes I mean, it's a personal thing um when we played and when we used to play in our 20s it used to be you know sort of the airport hotel golf course golf course hotel hotel airport home but i it was I was like that a little bit, but I still did enjoy going around and looking at the scenery, looking at the old town of Madrid and and the Barcelonas or wherever we were. I used to enjoy that, but I should I personally should have been totally more devoted to the game and and stopped letting my mind wander on, onto the different colours of the golf course, the different uh, coloured trees and the bushes and stuff. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing what I did, and as I do now, my my pals who I play golf with often say, "For goodness' sake, shut up about the different colours of the bushes, the different trees." And the, you've seen that bird over there, the parakeet or, <laughs> or the, the the dovetail or whatever, whatever bird I'm looking at. And they, they say, "Would you just concentrate on golf?" Which I find very, I did find difficult, uh, and more so now as as I've got older, because I tend to enjoy playing, enjoy trying to find back the age process but i thoroughly more enjoy now just looking at where the golf courses are built this is not your normal golf coaching book um what i love about it is it's short easy to read coaching tips interspersed with fascinating and often hilarious anecdotes which we'll we'll get to those later but first of all tell me a bit about how the book came about about three, four years ago, I was writing 10 or 12 bullet points for the technical side of, of playing golf. And by the time I'd finished, I thought, this book is, this is great. But it's actually, I can't do half of these things. I can't turn 270 degrees anymore. I can't hit the thing 300 yards. And I was thinking, right, I've actually written these are this for the 30-year-old, 40-year-old. There's nothing for my age group, 55 to 60 or 65 the aged sportsman who can't turn anymore. And I just sat down. I thought, actually, I'm going to just start writing a book about playing golf for the seniors who can't turn and how we can adapt our physical bodies to the golf swing. And it, it, that was fascinating. As, as I'm now playing today, late 60s and possibly even 70 now, I'm out playing and I'm trying new ideas to try and get to the golf swing to adapt to my very aging and stiff body. There was no golf book on the market to, to help us seniors who are stiff, aging bodies, bad knees. I've got two titanium knees and I can't swing the golf club as I used to do in my 20s and 30s. So I've adapted the top half of my body to, to work with my new knees. So that's how the book came about. And Simon, the co-author of the book, is a pupil of yours, I understand. Well, and this book is very much pupil-led rather than coach-led. Yes finished the, off the sort of 250 odd page manuscript as such, put it in the bottom drawer and it stayed there for six months. And, and I was teaching Simon one day who came along who had an illness with cancer. And I was trying to rebuild his golf swing using his 60s. And he sort of said, oh, I've written a couple of books. And I said, oh, I've written a thriller. It's all about an aged golf swing. And he said, can I see it one day? And I showed it to him all these pages and he said you know there's something in this could we could we work together I said you know it's fine I would love to because it's it's I know it's a, it could be a very good book and it's just stagnating in my office drawer in the desk drawer at the minute also I have to ask you're definitely left-handed but in these in the pictures in the book you're playing right-handed 
Yes, yes. <laughs> well, if you look in the mirror, you, you, we all go to a driving range, and you know, I look in the mirror at myself trying to swing a golf club, and I come back as a right-hander. It's it's all a mirror image. The you know the I, I never talk if I do a demonstration of clinic today. You never talk about left and right. You talk about top and bottom, front and back. So there's no confusion. So the, the all the photographs in the book are of me. And just turned round. So you know, it's a, it's a it's a mirror image. Are you a decent golfer, right-handed? Thinking back to my days in Scarborough when I first started off, everyone said to me, "You'll never play golf left-handed. You have to turn right-handed." And I got to about eight. I got to 18 handicap, but I found it so difficult that in my third, when I was 13, 14, I was playing a lot of cricket for North Yorkshire and I was playing left-handed. So to play left-handed cricket and then right-handed golf, it was just so confusing. I wasn't buying close who could do both to a great standard. So I got to about, I got to 18 handicap right-handed at the age of 13, 14, but it was just so difficult. So I went back to being left-handed. Was that when you say that players or other fellow players said to you that you'll never make it as a, a as a left-hander? Is that because of the equipment that was available at the time? Purely, purely simple. The equipment there was no left there was no left-handed equipment about. I, I think my my first ever set was a Wilson Sam Snead set, which my father and I, my father, my dad from Scarborough, we got on the train uh, to go to Manchester, and I think it was. Um, Lily White in Manchester in those days, 1963, it would have been 64, to buy a set of left-handed clubs. Uh, we had to go all the way across the country to do that. So in those days, left-handed equipment just was not about. So what were you when you when you made it on tour? What were you using? I was using then Lynx. Either there was a lovely company by the name of Link. And just, just because we're on the subject, I'm going to ask, There's there's been a lot of talk recently, or when I say recently, I mean the last two decades, about um, rolling the golf ball back. As someone who's played across both eras, what are your thoughts on, on how far the golf ball goes? It's unfortunate. I think it's gone too far now. But but I, I'm speaking from an older person, older generation, that the, it's now all about length uh, and not, you know, the, the Lee Trevinos of this world, the Ballesteros is, is a, have been left behind because it's now the Roy McElroys who can average well over 300 yards of drive. Gone is the shot making. But that's, we've moved on. We can't live in the past. The golf ball <coughs> and equipment and physical, mental, it's all improved beyond all possibilities of when I was playing. So, it's a shame. I just think the the golf ball travels a bit too far now, that the golf courses are redundant, that we're having to build new tees, that to accommodate the the new the golf ball that can fly so far and it's a costly thing. But but you can't go backwards. You, no one's going to the RNA or the USGA are not going to stop the golf ball manufacturing. It's going to as it is now, it's possibly gone as far as it's going to go. But it's gone a long way from when I played. So how was that change for you? Going, I mean, you were going into your senior career by the time the, 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 the modern golf ball, let's call it, had come into play. So did you find you could hit the ball as far in your 50s as you could when you were in your 20s? Or Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, with the modern equipment, I mean, we would, if you, we played, say, in the, the open at Lytham in the 70s and you found the, the, the notes, if you found the notes in the bottom drawer somewhere of what your yardages were and the clubbing was in those days. And then you go back 30 years later, 40, 30 years later and play it. You found your notes about the same. 
it, you'd move your the length hadn't you hadn't diminished when we were playing in our fifties. Obviously, when you get to the late sixties, seventies, yes, you, the the distance has reduced. But in your fifties, the golf ball, the clubbing was the same as as it was when we were in our twenties. Just to go back to the so, book, what's your what's your favourite piece of advice in the book? Just to give it, just to give the listeners a flavour of what the book's about. Well, it's on the technical side. It's a, it's just adaption. You know, we can't we can't swing the way we did in our twenties and thirties and forties. We can't do it. So adaption. We've got to think. Well, we think out of the box, which is good fun. Um, you know, I, in the back to the Ryder Cup, I played with Don January, who was a fantastic golfer. And afterwards, he we talked about something. He said, "Oh, I, I because of age, I have to change my swing." every year, every two years, because I'm physically not the same. And, of course, here we are 30, 30 odd years later, thinking, heck, Don January told me that in the Ryder Cup in 1977, and I'm now saying to the people I play with for fun or give a couple of lessons to, you know, we have to think out of the box. We have to adapt to the golf swing to our physiques. So the book, what I said earlier, the book is interspersed with very good and often very funny anecdotes from your playing days. There's one story I have to ask you about, the, the, the caddy story from the Dutch Open. Tell us about that. <laughs> Thank you for that, Alex. They're all true. That's a good thing. They all <laughs> happen. The one in, in Holland, it was, um, I, it was when my, one of my very first Dutch Opens in about 73 or 74 and the story had it that we were playing on this particular golf course. And a couple of years before, the 18th is a par, par four, about 400 yards, 380 yards, over, round a dog leg over a sand dune. And in those days, we used to share, I mean, some boys used to travel the tour in uh, post bands, old bands, uh, to save money. And in those days, if you missed the cut, you could carry for your pal. So two pros could be in the in the group on the on the final day. So on this particular occasion, this young fella um, had his pal, his roommate, caddying for him on the final day because he was a pro. And he went out in about 30, I think it was, 31 strokes. And then coming back, he was playing, kept it going. And on the 18th, I think he needed a four for a 61 or something to break the course record. And it was coming in about 12 o'clock and all the members were having lunch. And he hit his second shot across over the sand dune onto the green. And the ball rolled right up to virtually the outer bounds on the terrace where the members were looking at the score, big scoreboard behind the 18th. And it saw this young fella needs uh, two parts now for to break the course record of a 61 or 62, I think it was. But... Unbeknown to them, behind the sand dune, the player changed, the, the caddy naturally had the bip saying the player's name. But what, unbeknown to these the spectators, they, he, um, the, <laughs> the player put on the bip and the, the, bip, the caddy now looked like he was the player. So the caddy, in theory, walked onto the green, swinging the putter, applaud, taking all the applause. And then they got on the green and they started arguing about uh, the, the length, the, 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 the line of the putt. And the caddy was saying right, left, well, the, and the player was saying right, left, left. So the fellow with the bip, who is now the, the player, he is the player. He says, give me the damn putter and I'll show you. So 
the caddy with the bip on now looks like he's potting. So he puts down and, and, <clears> and then taps it in and throws the club, the putter back at the caddy and says, there you go, I damn well told you it was left lip, not right lip. I missed it because of you. And, of course, all the spectators um, have come out of the clubhouse with their glasses of wine over lunch, thinking that the uh, caddy was now playing. But they didn't know the caddy and the player had changed, had changed over. It was just pure, innocent, great fun in those days. There wasn't the, the uh, wall-to-wall coverage of the TV cameras. There wasn't the spectators. So maybe the half dozen spectators who were following saw saw the joke and didn't say anything to anybody, saw the joke and laughed about it on the green as well. They joined in. And of course, it was lighthearted. And the money wasn't the same in those days as it is today. It was all part of the the, the, the youthfulness of, of in your first tournaments and whatever. And it's the fact that how it's all changed. Now it's cameras all over the place, spectators all over the place. The humour may not be the same anymore. So that was, as from a professional point of view, that was um, always a funny. Uh, it was always a funny one. Absolutely magnificent. There are, as I said, plenty of other stories just like that in the book, but we we don't want to spoil them all. So what what's next for Peter Dawson? Are you still coaching, or are you just enjoying retirement now? I'm. I still enjoy a little bit of coaching, not much now. When you think about coaching and you think about the youngsters, I, a young pro, a young twenty-year-old doesn't want to be coached by some old fogey now. It's natural. It's they. We've got flight scopes, we've got computers and everything. The youngster has to be coached by a youngster. He's talking his language, so they don't want to be taught by somebody my age. As somebody said to me weeks ago, when I was talking, helping a young county player, just for the fun of it, he said, "You know, have you ever played with Tiger Woods?" And you think, well, I did say to him, you know, there was players before Tiger Woods, you know, <laughs> Sean, you know, Sean, there was great players before. You know, golf did not start with Nike and Tiger Woods. There was golf before it. And if you sort of thought, you know, well, that's about sums up the youth, <laughs> the youth, the youthful player nowadays. You know, Tiger Woods was the start of golf. Which is fine, and we, that's that's lovely. I don't um, think it's golf that that's just a problem for, though, is it really? That's a, oh that's, no, that's an all sport problem. That's an all sport. That's life. That's life. Not that's all sport. We were the same. I mean, you know, I, you you asked me uh, minutes ago about how did I get into golf. I mean, at twenty, I thought, having played for England, I must be quite good, and I was in plastics and extrusion, and I was quite good at that. And I must be good. And of course, you find that you're not actually. You, you were just naive. Uh, you're ignorant of the big world, really. And it's it's life. We've all we've we've fortunately we've, I've lived through it. And uh, and so a youngster can say, you know, to the who's Bobby? Well, you know, Bobby Charlton, Dennis Law, whoever. And you say, well, the, the, these were great players in the past. You know, it's it's not just the the messies or whoever it is of today. That it, it's 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 a it's a normal thing it's a generation thing it's normal peter um i think i've taken up way more than your of your time than i expected i really think we'll we'll leave it there it's absolutely fascinating thank you so much um the book now for the back nine is available on amazon and in all we good have, do we have, a, we have, what's the cliche have, all good bookstores 
Uh, well, it's, it's on Amazon, but we have our own website uh, now for the back nine co.uk so we, you can get people can get it through there fortunately i've been i've had some very nice reviews on it i was playing in fact i was playing locally in in winchester yesterday and the president of the golf club came along and said you know i'm trying i'm trying that tip of yours on page he even quoted me the page <laughs> and he said and he's i'm playing really well and i said you know i said to him well if that one tip is working and it's working really well it's been money well spent. Yes, uh, and I would I would just like to add that even though it's not really aimed at my age group, sort of mid to late 30s, um, I still have taken an awful lot from the book. Um, and I would highly recommend that anyone who just wants to play golf to, to a standard that maybe I play at, sort of a mid-handicap standard, can get so much from it. And like I said, I already have. And Peter, I just again want to say thank you for your time. Um, very interesting and good luck with the book. I hope it. I'll never make a millionaire, but I feel richer from the nice words you just said about it. So thank you very much, and it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. Thank, thanks, Alex. So that was Peter Dawson, former European Tour and Ryder Cup player and contender for the nicest man in golf. Now, I continued the conversation for a few more minutes after we finished recording and I told Peter my own experiences of dealing with Tom Watson. The eight-time major champion was, as a young journalist around 15 years ago, the very first genuine superstar of any sport that I was lucky enough to interview and I told Peter that Watson was exactly the same with me as he was with him on that first tee back in 77. Incredibly gracious and helpful and gave me all the time I needed to get through my questions. Now, I didn't mention this in the podcast as it was about Peter rather than me, but he insisted, and I think this is a measure of the the man that Peter is also, he insisted that I include it because he was so keen to get across just how much he appreciated Watson and what he meant to him at the time. Now, onto the book. As we mentioned in the podcast, you can buy it from Amazon and in bookstores and now for the back9.co.uk. If you have any questions for Peter, you can contact him via the website or he's on Twitter at Peter Dawson PGA. And remember to follow National Club Golfer too. Just search for us on your chosen social media platform. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the NCG podcast. (laughs) 